Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. What's the impact of 10 months Welcome of pandemic fear alone? Welcome to the Roy Green Show podcast. Ourselves. We've been talking about on this program, and we're going to get at now with Mark Hennick mental health strategist, his TED Talk video on attempting suicide at 15 and being saved by a stranger is among the most viewed in the world with millions of occasions, millions of views. He was also marked as the National Director of Strategic Initiatives for the Canadian Mental Health Association, served as National Spokesman for the Canada-wide Faces of Mental Illness Campaign, and is CEO of Strategic Mental Health Consulting. So we have a two-parter here with Mark. First one, we're going to talk about these issues, and then his autobiographical book, So-Called Normal, was released this past Wednesday, already doing great on Amazon. Uh, so let's let's get at it. Mark, thank you very much for taking the time again. Hi, Roy. Thanks for having me. So uh, let's start with this a generic point, more than a question. Little question, then, that many Canadians are under increased stress just fundamentally because of COVID, Right. Yeah, and we've been seeing uh, the mental health of Canadians, according to Morneau Chappelle's monthly uh, analysis that they've been doing, we've been seeing their mental health decline uh, pretty consistently ever since the beginning of the pandemic. And it's, you know, entirely understandable why. Yeah. So do you have a little more information on that, on on how our mental health is declining? I'm sure that people find themselves doing things, saying things, perhaps acting in ways they normally wouldn't. Yeah, you know, I mean, initially, I think it was the shock uh, of such a a dramatic change to our everyday habits. Uh, And then there was a period of resistance and of fatigue with it. Uh, And now I think we're at this point where we can't do many of the things, especially in the dead of winter, that we normally would have done to keep ourselves well. Uh, And maybe many of us didn't realize that we didn't have very good coping mechanisms because we never needed them before, right? So now that we can't necessarily go out and shop as much or go to the gym and exercise or go out with friends as much, uh, we're realizing that, that we don't necessarily have these skills internally. So we're seeing this as, uh, you know, increasing rates of depression, of anxiety. We're very concerned that uh, suicide rates may increase as well. Uh, and it's because I think that people don't have, uh, haven't had the opportunity like this before to develop the coping mechanisms they need Mm-hmm. You know, we used to, at this time of year, maybe a few weeks from now, generally, we would write it off as cabin fever, right? We were, well, we're in the, the doldrums of winter, and it's cabin fever, and all we have to do is wait it out. We had no restrictions on what we could do. Now we're dealing with cabin fever, we're dealing with COVID, we're dealing with restrictions, and as you say, coping mechanisms uh, are, are significantly more important. What would you say, um, Mark, would be some coping mechanisms, just fundamental coping mechanisms people might employ. Yeah, you know, I think if if this last several months has taught us anything, I think it should be how flexible we are uh, in terms of how we move through the world. And by that, I mean, uh, very often when we have uh, difficult circumstances in our lives, uh, the circumstance itself is difficult on its own. There's no invalidating that. Uh, but but very often it's how we respond to it. It's the resistance that we bring to it or saying, no, I don't want it to be this way or it shouldn't be this way or it should be some other way. All that stuff just causes problems for us, to be very honest. It makes us anxious. It makes us stressed out. Um, so we can't always control the circumstances around us, but we can control our response to it, or at least we can learn to better control our response to the circumstances. And I think that's one of the most important coping mechanisms, uh, is being able to take a little bit of distance from the things that we find challenging, uh, being able to realize that we might not be able to control the situation, uh, but at least we can help to uh, shape our response to it. And, And that might include finding new ways to take care of yourself. Maybe you can't go out to dinner with your friends anymore, but you can do more Zoom meetups or phone calls or even old-fashioned letter writing. You know, there's always workarounds that we can find, and we need to resist getting stuck uh, in this sense of hopelessness and helplessness uh, that there's nothing we can do about this. Okay. What do you say about um, about kids, whether it's preteens or teens, kids who find themselves in a totally unfamiliar reality they can't go to school they can't be with their friends and depending on where they are in the country many parts of the country most parts of the country they can go to school but there have been times when schools have been closed across canada different parts at different times how do the youngest among us cope yeah you know kids are incredibly resilient and i think there's actually so much that adults 
uh, can and should be learning from from their kids. Because obviously it's hard when these changes first happen, you know, when schools uh, here in Ontario, for example, uh, where I'm based, go back out again after after going back in for a period of time. Uh, that's hard initially for kids because they just started to see their friends again. Um, but then they get used to it really quickly, too. You know, I think that as we get older, we become more stubborn, we become more set in our ways, uh, and we, we tend to be less flexible. So we can really learn from kids as to how to figure out other ways to have fun. And remember, you know, kids find uh, fun in the and, and engagement and connection in the seemingly most innocuous things. So I think it's a good uh, challenge for parents especially and for other adults uh, to learn how to connect with your kids in different ways, to, to model flexibility for your kids, because that's the, the number one skill that will help them to be resilient in life. I mean, resilience isn't about avoiding struggle altogether. It's not at all about having only good days where nothing bad or inconvenient ever happens to you. It's how you deal with the difficult circumstance that you have. That's what resilience is. Mark, we're going to talk about uh, your book in the second segment here that we're going to be talking about, uh, talking to you about, so-called normal, which came out last Wednesday and is available um, to be ordered at Amazon and other uh, other online options. But what what I'm just curious about uh, is what do you what does the person do who? And I know you've talked about coping mechanisms and how we should approach things, take a step back, and just try to realize where we are. But I've been in touch with one listener particularly over the last little while. And I, 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 can't, I can't possibly get into diagnosis or providing advice. It's not what I do. But I've been in touch with this listener because I just find this, the, the, the story compelling. And I think it may uh, approximate what's happening to a lot of other people. And without you know, doing anything, to, saying anything to identify the person, it just seems that this person is on a downward spiral. Mm-hmm. And at the beginning of the email exchange, wasn't aware of it. I was because I was looking in from the, in from the outside, and I had a sense that this person is doing less and less well. But most recently, the emails that I received are almost asking for help. And my reply is, there is help out there. You need to find it. You need to, or you should, consider chasing it down. But what do you say to the person who is in that position where they realize, hey, things aren't going well for me now? Yeah, you know, I think the, the first step that we should always do, whether we're, and we don't have to be a mental health professional uh, to do this. I think anybody can and should learn these skills. But the very first step is validating their experience. You know, just because, uh, or whether or not you might, share their hardship or see if it's difficult or understand why it's difficult. That doesn't matter. If they find it hard, then it's hard. Uh, because you are your own, you only know your life inside your own head, right? What you personally experience. So first and foremost, uh, validate what they're experiencing, uh, connect with them on that front. The next step is if they want to talk, let them talk. You know, very often people don't want to necessarily jump to uh, in, into what I call a fixer fixation, where they just want to fix all the problems. Sometimes they just really want to get it off their chest because they haven't been able to talk to anybody in, in months uh, or, or if at all. Uh, and then the third step, assuming that you're not a, you know, a mental health professional who is qualified to intervene in a, in a, um, a formal kind of way, uh, very often people who are struggling are helped even more by knowing that at least they have somebody in their corner. So offer to help. Look, you can even say, look, I don't know uh, what to tell you right now, uh, but I'm willing to help figure it out, right, to help you do some Google searches to see what avail- what's available in your area, to uh, get you in touch with the local Canadian Mental Health Association or your local hospital. Uh, whatever it takes to help that person connect with, with a professional who can help them, um, I think that's being a, a great ally. Uh, and then they know that they're not alone. So-called normal was released this past Wednesday. Doing great already, Mark. You're uh, you're way up there in, in in Amazon sales. It is, and it's it, you know it surprises me most of all. I think because this is a story that I've been working on now. It's my story for the last uh, nearly four years uh, since I first started the project, and I feel like I've been through so many drafts and put so much work into it. I guess I just lost sight of the fact that someday it would be out there in the world and that people would read it. Uh, and I'm very, very grateful that people are, are responding to it uh, incredibly well. They're saying that it's a, a page-turner and, and that it reads very well. So, you know, that, that's so validating to hear that something that was so difficult for me to live uh, and then the, and then so um, difficult to write is now being received so well by the public.
Mm-hmm. And, and the TED Talk video has been viewed millions of times. You at 15 years of age, attempting suicide, and being saved by a stranger who you later met. Can you just walk us through just the fundamentals of the book? And I'm always fascinated by why an author chooses a title. Why so-called normal? Yeah, you know, I, I really wanted, after I did uh, the TED Talk back in 2013, to let people know that there was more to my story uh, than just the two uh, very short stories that I told in that talk of my first uh, time thinking about suicide and then what ended up being my last time when a complete stranger pulled me off the edge of a bridge and saved my life. Um, you know, we know from from uh, how is a, or, or the most helpful way to talk about suicide is to talk about it in context, that it's not something romantic, it's not something glamorous, that there's a lot of stuff that happens in the background of just that one little story or one one attempt. And for me, it was a childhood, uh, you know, packed with trauma, with change, with uh, uncertainty and movement and a failed mental health care system. Um, so by the time I made it to that bridge, I'd already been in and out of the hospital more than half a dozen times. Uh, and after that stranger saved my life, after I let go of the railing and he, he pulled me back over the railing, it really gave me an example of uh, who I could be when I grew up. You know, I could be like that stranger uh, who had my back, who reached out and, and saved my life. So when I did, you know, that, or when I decided in a very small way, uh, in a very catalytic way, that that's who I wanted to be, that's when things started to turn around for me. And, and I go through a bit of that in the book, too. So, you know, I, I think I discovered through the course of writing the book that I and many others uh, strive for this uh, unrealistic ideal of what normal means, especially if you have a mental illness. You know, you want to be like all those normal people out there. And it turns out I've learned from talking now to hundreds of people through the podcast and through counseling and, and elsewhere that there's no such thing as normal, that we're all striving for this, this, this um, fictitious statistical mean that doesn't really exist. Everybody's just figuring it out as they go and, and wondering if they're doing it right or not. Uh, so I think that's what I came to learn through writing the book, is that uh, you write your own story, both in how you live it and how you tell it. You had a difficult, and you do have the podcast, so-called normal as well. I want to point that out. Uh, you had a very difficult time growing up as well in your home. It wasn't; it was dysfunctional. The environment, as I understand, and uh, and and so if, if let's assume that there are young people listening to this program now, who are in an environment that has gone somewhat negative since the pandemic began, what do you say to them? If they're listening and they're curious and they don't know what to do about the circumstance in their homes, as you say, young people are resilient, more so than adults. But if they're in an environment now that they just are very uncomfortable in and it's affecting them, what do you say to them? You know, I, I think this is this is hard to get perspective on until you're actually out of it, until much, much later. But one of my um, favorite lessons since I became a writer a couple of years ago was that everything that you've lived is material. That, as, as the writer Anne Lamont has uh, famously said, you own everything that happened to you. Um, and why I really like that is because if you're currently in the process of something really difficult, uh, remind yourself that it will pass, that, ju- that we know just through the passage of time uh, that it will move on and change. That's the nature of life. Um, so in the moment, then, observe it, journal it, remember it, uh, do something good with it. Um, you know, our stories don't have any other meaning except for the meaning that we give them. Uh, and if we choose then to use the things that happen to us, even the traumatic, difficult, challenging things, um, that can be the source of such incredible creative content and energy. So, you know, even though it's difficult right now, and I have no doubt that it is, I've been there too, um, someday it will be useful. Uh, so I think in some ways you have to trust the process and, and trust yourself uh, reach out for help, certainly, uh, along the way, but realize that, that this might be something that you can do something with later. Yeah, you're a great communicator. Mark, thank you for sh- spending the time with us. Thank you for writing the book. It's called So Called Normal. That's the title. His uh, Mark's uh, biographical book by Mark Hennick. And you can go on Mark's website, which is com, and there's the podcast as well, So Called Normal. Let's get to this issue of what's going on in the United States and the inauguration and the security concerns. We've all seen the video. We've heard the stories of 20,000 National Guard being present in Washington to protect the inauguration activities and protect the president-elect. 
And we've heard the FBI concerns that there will be armed protests in Washington and at 50 state capitals, all 50 state capitals. So, I mean, this is an inauguration like no other. And the FBI, again, is warning all the United States of uh, what they're concerned about. And the Joint Chiefs, the military bosses, the generals and admirals, issued a statement to everyone in the U.S. military, reminding them of their oath and their responsibility under that oath. We'll get into that a little later in the hour. Christopher Voss is a former senior FBI agent in New York City. He was also the FBI's chief hostage and kidnapping negotiator and was a member of the New York City Joint Task Force on Terrorism. He's the founder of the Black Swan Group and author of Never Split the Difference, Negotiate as if Your Life Depended on It. Uh, Chris Voss has been very good to us over the years with his time. Chris, thank you very much for taking the time today. Uh, in in your years of law enforcement, has there ever, other than perhaps 9-11, been a situation which might compare to the security preparations for the inauguration of Joe Biden? No, no, this is. This is almost comical, uh, the amount of division and um, the absence of the current leadership from wanting to speak up now to just try to settle things down. I've, ne- I've never seen anybody more missing in action. So uh, when you say missing in action, you're talking about uh, the current administration or the incoming administration? Yeah, the current administration. I mean, I think the real fear here is, you know, having whipped up the mob, I think Trump's real fear here now is that he'll try to speak the common down and he'll be ignored. I mean, when anger starts to get out of control, you know, the definition of a fanatic is someone who's redoubled their efforts while losing sight of their original goal. And the anger's out of control now, and the people that whip the mob, are they realize that if they speak to calm them down, they're going to be ignored, and Trump doesn't want to be embarrassed by being ignored. How worried are you? Um, I mean, you handled, uh, you were in the middle of some of the most uh, trying and challenging situations, including 9-11, on the New York City Task Force on Terrorism. How, how concerned are you about the situation that presents itself in Washington and at 50 state capitals? Well, it, yeah, it's, it's clearly it's concerning, but I think that the way it's being approached right now is probably um, a ve- I, I like the approach right now. I mean, I like the idea, the National Guard going out to try to def- uh, defend the different areas. It's much more of a defensive position. You know, it's beginning to take a little bit of the sting out of the response. When you put riot police out there who have their role, but... They, it's a little bit more of an offensive maneuver, and the, the National Guard is a defensive maneuver, and, and that's probably the smartest way, the highest percentage way to minimize um, violent and reactive responses right now. When you saw what, what was going on on the 6th of January, Chris, at uh, the Capitol, what was your reaction as an American as an, uh, and as a multi-decade law enforcement official? How did you respond to that? It's, you know, it's, it was horrible. It was, you know, it was, it was a leadership of the United States. The president of the United States whips a crowd in a frenzy and sends them down Constitution Avenue. And nobody's prepared for that. Nobody's had, in, in our history, we haven't had, um, the, pre, the White House whip, uh, whip people into a frenzy and send them in a direction and get out of the way. And nobody really knew what to do with that. It was astonishing. Mm -hmm. I should not presume to know what the most intense situation was for you. And I may have asked you this in one of our earlier interviews uh, some years ago. I assumed it was 9-11, but let me ask you, what was the most intense crisis that you found yourself engaged in when you were still a senior FBI agent? Uh, Well... You know, with intensity of emotions on either side, we, you know, we had a bank robbery. We surrounded the bank, and we didn't know what was going on inside. Um, you, when, when tensions are that high at any given point in time, you, you, you make it a point to take steps forward gently, um, not harshly. You know, um, you have to take steps forward. 
you do you assertion is necessary. You just you don't want to do it in a, in a clumsy in a clumsy manner. So you surround a bank, you surround a you surround a prison. You take f- steps forward gently. You know the FBI surrounded Waco and took steps forward with tanks. That was a mistake. That wasn't taking steps forward gently. You you want to you want to contain a situation and contain it gently. So th- there was that individual who was found. Uh earlier this week with an illegal firearm, 500 rounds of ammunition. And and there are concerns about explosives being used. If there were a situation that were to develop, and we hope it doesn't, but if something were to develop on Inauguration Day or before, and an individual were to be in a situation where they would have to be communicated with, which is is what you did as a hostage negotiator and kidnapping negotiator, um, how do you approach talking someone down, particularly somebody who might be willing to die and kill others for a cause they supposedly believe in. And I ask that question, Chris, because I imagine that FBI agents who are doing today what you did for many years are preparing for just that. Yeah, they are. You know, and there's a, uh, what people lose sight of is there's a difference between willing to die and wanting to die, and especially when you're faced at the moment of decision-making. And to really clarify the importance of that and the reality of that, you know, way back when uh, the 9-11 attackers, as I recall, they had um, about 18 protocols to go through before they executed uh, executed the attack. Fifteen of those 18 were designed by their masters so that they didn't lose their nerve. You know, it's a it's a losing your nerve at the point of attack is the real issue, and and someone may get right up to the edge, and not be sure that that's the day they really want to die, and that's what hostage negotiators are looking for. They're looking for that glimmer of indecision in the moment. You know, you now that you stand on the edge of the cliff, do you really want to go over right now, or do you want to maybe? You can always go over the cliff on another day. You don't have to go over today. And, and that's that's the thread that hostage negotiators are looking for. But let me get to your book for a second. I find sure. the title fascinating. I know it's selling extremely well. Never split the difference. Negotiate it as if your life depended on it. In some of the circumstances you were involved in, that really was the case. What's the message in the book? What are you telling us? Yeah, you know, uh, it's classic. It's um, seek first to understand, then be understood. Seek first to make people understand and be understood. It's actually, it it's accelerates outcomes. You know, this thing that we refer to as tactical empathy in the book, which is, you know, demonstrated understanding. I got to tell you, I'm a mercenary. I do, I do it because it works. I do it because it helps me get my deals faster. I mean, since we started the company and we're, you know, we're coaching business and personal negotiations, we are helping so many people have better lives and enjoy lives and make more money. And it really is, it accelerates outcomes by showing the other side. You understand where they're coming from. Not that you agree, but that you just, you can see where they're coming from. You can at least see it. You don't got to agree with it, but you can see it. And it, it's, it seems silly that it would make such a difference, but it does. Life is a series of negotiations, isn't it? From the from the time we get up in the morning to the time we go to bed, to bed every night, there's a series of negotiations take place. Yeah, exactly. And that's why, you know, negotiation and navigation are great synonyms. I mean, what do we navigate it on a daily basis? We're navigating interactions. We're navigating a collaboration. You know, how do we get together and make things better? So, yeah, absolutely. Life is a series of negotiations. Is there one fundamental rule that you should employ when when you're negotiating, whether it's on a personal level or whether it's on a business level? What do you do? What's the first thing you need to do? Yeah, really make it make an attempt to hear the other side out. I mean, you could be so determined to have your say that you're going to miss that the other side really wants something that would be really good for you. Um. And for whatever percentage of time that that happens, whether it's 20% or whether it's 80% of the time, I don't care what that percentage is. You know, I, I want you to offer me something I want instead of me asking for it because overall you're going to feel better about the interaction. You're going to want to do it again. So 
the real rule is, you know, hear the other side out. They might just surprise you with something you really like. Um, so, so the uh, the book um, again is um, gives the title again, uh, Chris, please, because my computer's decided not to, to cooperate with me today. Never split the difference. <laughs> never split the difference. Yeah, it just freezes. Up. It's frozen on me about four or five times since the show started. What was the uh, what was the most difficult negotiation that you were involved in when you were the FBI chief hostage and kidnapping negotiator? Well, that's one of the stories we talk about in the book. I mean, we, uh, second major kidnapping working in the Philippines, um, it was, it was just a train wreck. I mean, everything about it went bad. There was poor cooperation on, you know, on the American side, on the U.S. side, very poor coordination. We, you know, I took a lot of, I took cooperation for granted instead of really working with my colleagues to make sure we got it. Or I didn't hear the people on my side of the table out enough. And the bad guys on the other side, you know, they were messed too. And it ended up with a botched rescue attempt where two out of three of our remaining hostages were killed. And we just, you know, we went back, you know, the with the Colin McGregor line, I, I, I win or I learn. We went back to learn. And as, as horrible as that outcome was, and I've actually been in touch with, some of the children of those hostages. You know, I'm old enough now that I'm meeting children of hostages. Other lives were saved as a result of what we learned. But in, when we were in the middle of it, it was a train wreck. Yeah. Can't imagine. I mean, that is the kind of situation that's developing around you. And you're trying to control what's going on. When, when you look at Thursday, or even today through Thursday and following the inauguration, do you have concerns that the United States is on the verge of real national violence? No, we're headed. We're going to be headed in a good direction. Now, it's going to be. A, it's not going to be a straight line. You know, it's always a roller coaster, whether you're going up or whether or not you're going down. I'd. I like the approach that the president-elect has taken. He's making it a real point to not fan the flames. There's no sorts, no shortage of temptations for him to jump in with escalating rhetoric, and he's just choosing not to do it. You know, the question of the impeachment, he's staying out of it. He's He wants to govern moving forward, and he's been around long enough to recognize rhetoric that doesn't contribute to the situation and I, and I like the very measured approach that he's taken. That doesn't mean everybody's going to take it and that doesn't mean it's going to be perfect. But I best chance of success, I think they're on they're on a, a path for a, a chance to best chance to de-escalate and start a healing process among between the sides. Here's something that's of importance to each and every one of us and particularly if you ever sign on online, if you go online, this is really important to you and who doesn't, right? If you use your computer, if you use your smartphone, if you use your tablet, if you use whatever you have that uh, that is digital, then this is really important to you. Bill C-11 or the Digital Privacy Law in Canada is being updated and uh, it's the first time in quite a long time. So we want to talk about that because, look, if you're, we talked about this before. If you are online and you're checking out a couple of things, let's say you're, I don't know, looking to buy a car. And so you're checking in a certain price range or you're checking certain models of cars. And then you go on to something entirely different about an hour later. Guess what shows up? You know, I know what's going to show up. Advertising for the kinds of cars you were looking for or in the price range or both that you're interested in. So are they watching you? Are they following you? Not a chance. It's purely coincidental. So C-11 is important as well. The Trudeau government indicates interest in legislation to address online language, hurtful language. So if I tweet something, for example, that I think needs to be said, but it hurts somebody else's feelings, that could be a problem for me, even if it's completely covered by constitutional freedom of expression. The Supreme Court has defined what hate speech is and has defined it as unacceptable and illegal. 
But if I write something that you don't agree with, sorry, folks, but too bad. If you write something that I don't agree with, too bad for me. Deal with it. It's called freedom of expression. Just deal with it. We actually had a Human Rights uh, Commission hearing a couple of years ago where the lead investigator spoke before the human, it's human rights tribunal, where the lead investigator said, testified at the tribunal that there's no such thing as freedom of, of, of speech in Canada, that that's an American concept, quote, end quote. So where do they find these people? It's in our constitution. If you're going to be representing uh, the charter, if you're going to be speaking, addressing the charter, you should at least know what's in the charter or in the constitution of the country that which you are a citizen no don't you think uh, maybe it's just me being too picky again david fraser is a canadian internet privacy law expert one of the very best in the country one of the very best in the world and he's the originator of the privacy law blog he's a partner at mckinnis cooper in halifax and david joins us on the roy green show uh david thank you for the time well what about this whole idea of managing speech didn't the province of nova scotia try that already yeah, yeah, and uh, and they failed in a spectacular fashion. Uh, so, so we do have we don't often call it freedom of speech. In the law, it's freedom of expression. We have a charter protected right to uh, freedom of expression, but it is subject to some limits, limits that are kind of that could be reasonably prescribed by law that are consistent with a free and democratic society. So, we're not necessarily as freewheeling as in the United States. So, we do have laws related to kind of hate speech, but isn't isn't just offensive speech. It's speech that really kind of crosses the line and is intended to publicly incite hatred against an identifiable group of people. We do have a, a charter-protected right to offend people, uh, and that is particularly acute in areas of, kind of public commentary on matters of, of public interest. So what happened in Nova Scotia was we had a uh, a number of cases of, of cyberbullying, where, where young people in particular were cyberbullied, or there were activities that took place online. Uh, for example, the, the non-consensual distribution of, of intimate images uh, that led to uh, young people taking their own lives. And we had uh, the very notable case of Ritea Parsons, and I, I hate to kind of dehumanize somebody by kind of calling them a case, but that led to a, a significant emotional reaction uh, and in part so the politicians uh, what can they do they can pass laws and so we had something called the cyber safety act which was passed in nova scotia which was written super quickly uh, i understand that they threw a bunch of government lawyers in a conference room over a weekend fed them a whole bunch of coffee and said come up with a law and they came up with a law that, that made it illegal you could be sued and you could be kind of visited by government authorities just for hurting somebody's feelings and I said it was unconstitutional at the time, and so did a, a couple other people. And ultimately, I, I had the opportunity to represent an, an individual, an adult, who was accused of, of cyberbullying, a former business partner. Uh, and the court found it to be unconstitutional. It, it just did not have, it didn't cross the threshold that would be necessary to make speech illegal in Canada. And so when the government of Canada is talking about coming up with a law related to kind of offensive content online, that's a very difficult line to draw. Uh, and I, I'm willing to bet, because this is often what happens when politicians say, oh my goodness, we need to do something, uh, that line is probably not going to be drawn in the right place. An example that I gave, and, and this, <laughs> this will tell you the time at which it happened, I stood up in front of a, in front of a judge in Nova Scotia, and, and it was during the federal political campaign where they were making fun of, uh, of uh, now Prime Minister Trudeau's kind of hairdo and said, look, that would be illegal in Nova Scotia. And frankly, politicians should be fair game. And particularly when you're talking about kind of matters of public interest and legitimately held opinions on those matters of public interest, the, the dialogue associated with that should not be illegal. And, and furthermore, we shouldn't be afraid of saying and participating in legitimate public discourse by a fear that we're going to get a knock on our door or a phone call from from the government. Um, it's just not the way that things should work uh, in in Canada. The One of the first kind of uh, enforcement actions under the Nova Scotia law was initiated by an MLA uh, who was upset 
that uh, a couple young people had, had posted some pictures on the internet from when she had been an actor um, and had appeared topless. And a number of people who tweet regularly about Nova Scotia politics were were not pleased with her reaction and thought it was an overreaction. And so she reported them. And so imagine that you're kind of a, a pensioner, really interested in Nova Scotia politics, sitting at your kitchen table with your laptop, engaging in dialogue, and your phone rings. And it's the, the caller ID says government of Nova Scotia, and you're told to delete your tweets. Otherwise, there will be enforcement action. Oh, yeah. It could include cutting off your Internet access. Yeah, That's pretty chilling. It is. And, and you know, when I said, uh, if I tweet something or if I write something on social media, deal with it, I was thinking within the political context, because that's where I essentially live, on online. And uh, everybody knows, or should know, or if you listen to me at all and care about what I think about, which sometimes I wonder why people do, but I'm a small C conservative, a more libertarian than small C conservative. So if I write something that, you know, rubs somebody on the far left of the political spectrum the wrong way, well, tough. Uh, you can write something back to me that's that's uh, politically, uh, you know, um, opinionated, and maybe we can have an exchange. But for me to be silenced, or anybody to be silenced because they have an, uh, an opinion, it would be just way over the line. And as far as Ritae Parsons is concerned, I remember that case only too well, David. I spent uh, quite some time on the air with both the mum and the father of uh, Ritae Parsons, who took her life tragically after uh, um, this sexual uh, assault situation. And uh, it's all, it, it, you know, the, the conversation online is relevant, uh, but the, we do have freedom of expression. And I get that the Supreme Court made its decision as far as hate speech is concerned. I have no no issues with that whatsoever. But for the government, for the federal government to have any idea now, the current government, to shove its nose further into uh, dialogue that people may have, that to me is just uh, absolute overkill. David, on C-11, the uh, Digital Privacy Act, we live so much of our lives online, and we leave a trail behind us each time. And the, this has to, the whole idea of digital privacy has to be addressed, is being addressed. Could you just, in your words, describe what's going on with C-11, what the main issues are, and how critically important it is that this is addressed now? Sure. Yeah, I think one of the one of the first kind of main takeaways is that it's not restricted to digital. So it applies kind of across the board to all commercial activities. So it applies equally to your bank, whether you're in there filling out little paper forms, if you can still do that, or if you're banking online or dealing with the large Internet companies or, or social media. Um, so what they've done, and, and I have to say there's, there's something in the act to disappoint everybody. Um, it's, it's a bit of a Canadian compromise. We have a European example, which is pretty, pretty strenuous and pretty punitive. And so Canada has followed suit in that regard by, uh, for the first time, introducing significant penalties into the process. And so that any company that, that uh, with a serious infraction of the legislation could be fined up to, I think, 5% of their global revenue. Uh, which is a, a pretty significant hit, which is a, a little bit more than, than the European standard. Um, and th those penalties are administered by a tribunal. So rather than the privacy commissioner just kind of issuing penalties, in order to ensure fairness, because you don't want to have the, the police, the prosecutor, the judge, the jury, and the executioner being the same person, there's a tribunal that uh, that does that. So it introduces some additional probably time lag, but, but additional procedural fairness to make sure that it's, that it's appropriate in the circumstances. I think one thing that's probably that consumers are going to see most visibly, uh, assuming <laughs> a level of compliance, uh, is that there's a, a much greater emphasis on plain language disclosure of what's going on with your personal information. So instead of pages and pages and pages of, of privacy statements, there should at least be summaries. This should be intelligible by individuals so they can actually make informed choices about the information they, uh, they're, they're willing to impart to these organizations. Uh, and I, I think that's, that's a pretty important one. Uh, but there's also, uh, and some privacy activists are disappointed with this, some circumstances where organizations don't have to get express consent. And it's where kind of the, the purpose is relatively obvious, where it relates directly to providing the, providing the service, and I actually think that, that it makes some sense to kind of remove some speed bumps. Why force people to read things that are completely obvious, make them focus on 
and uh, focus on the things that, that they, they really should be aware of. And kind of at, at the end of the day, it doesn't go so far as, for example, create a right to be forgotten, but it does provide the right to require that a company erase or delete your information that you've, uh, that you've provided to them. Um, and so it, it's, <clears throat> it's a Canadian kind of compromise in a whole bunch of ways. It will be interesting to see kind of how it all, how it all plays out. So it's only just been introduced in Parliament. Uh, it hasn't yet been referred to committee, and it's at the committee stage that individual citizens and organizations have the opportunity to tell parliamentarians if they think it's too strong, not, <clears throat> not strong enough, or to suggest some tweaks and, and things like that. And I would really hope that, uh, that although it, it's a pretty voluminous statute or a pretty voluminous bill at this stage, uh, that individual Canadians will take the time to kind of educate themselves about it uh, and, and provide some input to their elected representatives, that, uh, that privacy and, and how organizations manage our personal information is, is more important than ever, and it's certainly not going to diminish in importance. Um, and so I, I think that uh, the Canadians should uh, take the opportunity to have their say. As, as you referred to before, <clears throat> our federal privacy law hasn't been significantly updated other than some tweaks, some important tweaks, but it's essentially tweaks over the last 20 years. And so this is an important kind of inflection point where Canadians yeah. can, uh, can have their say. You know, I, I remember uh, very clearly one conversation you and I had oh, years ago. It has to be at least 10 or 12 years ago. And, uh, and you pointed out, and I didn't know this at the time. Now, we go back at least a decade, maybe longer. And you pointed out that the moment that I go out with my phone, with my mobile phone, I'm being tracked. If it's on, I'm being tracked. It knows where I am. It knows what I'm doing. Or it can be, it, certainly that information can be obtained. And I remember being horrified. Well, maybe that's a strong word. <laughs> at least strongly surprised at that particular information. And I think of how far we've come. And again, if I go online and I check something or other that I might be interested in, I can be guaranteed within 10 minutes if I go and look at something else, whatever I was looking for is going to be uh, sold to me or the option. It, there's going to be a pitch for me to buy that particular yeah. item with option with with particular um, uh, you know individual choices to be made. That's why we pursued an aggressive procurement strategy in the first place. Canada has one of the most diverse vaccine portfolios in the world, and we secured the largest number of doses per capita of any country. We have seven bilateral agreements to ensure flexibility when it comes to supply chains. And like I said, this situation with Pfizer is temporary. Everything is temporary. From the Public Services and Procurement Minister, Anita Anand, um, we are once again, this is from Global News, we are once again in touch with representatives from Pfizer to reiterate firmly the importance for Canada to return to our regular delivery schedule as soon as possible. What exactly does that mean? Oh, yeah, we want you to do what you said you would do. But if you don't, what are we going to do? And how hard are they going to push? Let's listen to the other one. Go ahead. Due to work to expand one of the company's manufacturing facilities, deliveries to all countries receiving Pfizer doses made at the European facility will be temporarily reduced. This includes Canada. I want to be very clear. This does not impact our goal to have enough vaccines available by September for every Canadian who wants one. Now, that's clever by half. It does not impact our goal to have vaccines ready for everyone who wants them by September. It doesn't impact our goal. It may impact the delivery, but it doesn't impact our goal. You know, it's like the teams that are playing in the Super Bowl. Uh, the other team may be better than us, but it doesn't impact our goal to win the game. All right. Dr. Donald Gerson owns a company called NuVax, P-N-U-V-A-X. They are based in Montreal, and they manufacture vaccines. And they have an international reputation, Dr. Gerson does. He's been at this for a long time. And we spoke with Dr. Gerson uh, maybe a month and a half ago about the fact that NuVax offered its services on a commercial basis to the federal government of Canada to produce the uh, COVID vaccines. And the federal government of Canada said, no, we're not, we don't want you. Dr. Gerson, is that essentially correct? I'm, I'm, I'm just flying from the, from the hip here, shooting from the hip, but am I right? Hi, Roy. Good to talk to you again, and thanks very much for having me on. 
Uh, yeah, we we tried to do something with them, and you know, basically didn't get a response. Is the simple answer, and so and there's been no really further contact with the Canadian government since then, in spite of our trying to get some something going. I mean, look, we've got a fully GMP ready, good manufacturing practices ready. That means it's ready for Health Canada approval. 150,000 square foot manufacturing facility with four independent manufacturing suites. We could make any one of the kind of vaccines that are currently being discussed. Um, and we're trying to make some arrangements like that. Um, and we've got some people that might work with us. We need still the investment to implement those processes in our Canadian facility uh, so that we can make vaccines in Canada for Canada, which is really the way that I think the country has to go in many respects. I mean, at the moment, we're unfortunately in a de- dependency situation where we're, okay, they've made all kinds of supply agreements with a large number of companies around the world, but we're entirely dependent. We don't have any control over that manufacturing. And as you heard, you know, now the company is expanding its capacity, and so it's going to wait around. We're going to wait around while they do that. And, you know, building new buildings takes a long time, getting them into the condition that you have to be in to get approved by Health Canada or any other regulator takes a long time. So these kinds of, of uh, events take much longer than most people might think. We're not just, you know, even making cookies takes a long time. So this takes It does when you're hungry. Yeah, that's right. And we are hungry for the vaccines. We're hungry for the vaccine. So, you know, if we could get uh, an arrangement with one of the foreign companies that we're talking to, if we could get investment, hopefully in Canada, but from anywhere in the world, then we've got the third piece. We've got the place to make it. And so you're re- essentially you're ready to go. We're ready to go. We just need, I mean, and, and I think we're ready to go in two out of the three categories. Uh, we've definitely got the facility. We've got a good approach on three different vaccines right now. In addition, we have our own therapeutic antibody for the uh, disease. So the antibody clears the disease from your system. So if you uh, you can have it injected into you in advance if you're a frontline healthcare worker and then you're protected just as though you're immunized, maybe for a couple of months. Uh, or if you've just been infected, then the antibody will clear that virus from your system and you'll never get sick. So we're working on that on our own. Um, but any one of these things could be put into production here in Canada, you know, just add money, as I say. Okay, so uh, you have a you have a history of doing this. You're, you're not a newcomer at this. You've been doing it for years. You've done it, done it internationally. Share with us a little bit about your, your history, Dr. Gerson, and, and producing and manufacturing vaccines. Oh, sure. So I was uh, head of manufacturing for Connaught Labs uh, in Toronto in the 80s and up to 90s-something. And um, Canada, when Connaught was a fully Canadian company, was one of the largest producers of vaccines for the in the entire globe, most of it going to UNICEF. And then we also made like 85% of the Canadian need for vaccines. Uh, later, it was sold off to a foreign company, and all that international sales went back to the foreign com- company's country. Uh, so the volumes went way down. But, you know, everyone's familiar, I think, with the eradication of smallpox. Uh, Connaught was was one of the largest producers of smallpox vaccine in the world to help eradicate smallpox from the globe. I think it produced half the world's supply of smallpox vaccine at the time. So, you know, why can't we do that again now? So so you offer your services. You offer the services of NUVAX to uh, to the federal government. They will not comment, uh, looking at news stories about it, they, they will not comment beyond saying, well, essentially nothing. Um, but as I understand, and you can either corroborate or you can uh, tell us this information is incorrect, the news story that I read, and I'm trying to find it here, I want to give credit to the people who wrote it, and I, I apologize because I can't find it, um, but but the the story I read was that the that Ottawa decided to go with a public lab or a public facility that isn't even ready yet to to move ahead. Is that correct? That's correct. And so there's two uh, government owned labs, or essentially government owned labs. One at the NRC in Montreal on the other side of the parking lot from us, and the other ones in Saskatoon at Vito, the Veterinary Infectious Diseases Organization. So those two organizations receive government funds to build new facilities. And 
you know, I've probably built 20 plus new vaccine facilities around the world in my long career here. And typically it takes three years to build a facility and then probably another year and a half to two or sometimes three years to, um, I'm going to say, put in the software, put in all the operational procedures that allow you to use that facility and meet all the regulations from Health Canada and other regulatory agencies around the world. So, you know, a good guess timeline for let's build a new facility and make something in it is five years from start to launch of the product. Is it possible you upset the wrong people somewhere along the line? Oh, well, I wouldn't want to do something like that. <laughs> you know what I'm saying. There was, uh, there was, there was a story about, news story about uh, you having some conflict with the, with the Gates Foundation. I don't know how that turned out. Well, but... that, that was basically that was an accounting error that got straightened up. Um, it was a bit of a kerfuffle. But uh, there was an accounting area error made. Gates Foundation got upset by it. But when we finally, you know, went to a third-party accounting firm and had them review absolutely everything, the fact was it was an error and everything was fine. And the Gates uh, people calmed down. Okay, so you're ready to go. New Vax is ready to go. Yeah. You've offered your services to the federal government. We clearly know, we understand as Canadians, we need a manufacturing capacity in this right. country. I spoke yesterday with Paul Lucas, who, who I know you know, the former president and CEO of GlaxoSmithKline. And uh, Mr. Lucas pointed out that the government has been, uh, shall we say, somewhat disingenuous with its claims about uh, the readiness of uh, of uh, the uh, the. Uh, Canadian manufacturing sector, vaccine manufacturing sector. But uh, how quickly do you think, one final question quickly, uh, Dr. Gerson, how, how fast could you get the uh, get a vaccine up and running? Well, you know, given those three ingredients, facility which we have, process which we can get, money which we don't have, uh, I mean, literally we can start tomorrow. Um, I'll just give you an example. In uh, Right after the 9-11 event in the United States, I was asked with a friend of mine who was a military virologist to make a new smallpox vaccine for the United States for bioterrorism. Uh, we started with an older facility. We got it up and running. Uh, he was developing the brand-new vaccine from a cold start at the same time. We had vaccine made. In a year, we had it approved by the FDA and ready to put in the national stockpile in two years. Okay. So here, that front-end part is already done. Right. So I would say on that experience, a year easily, maybe faster if we really pushed it. And, you know, with a little bit more money, you can go a little bit faster. Not yeah. infinitely yeah. so, but you know what I mean. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend.